Amen. Good morning, everyone. So glad to have you with us. Um, at this time, the kids and youth are dismissed. Um, I think Pastor Patty has a group there, and the youth can go out there back door. Pastor Bree. Um, also want to wish everyone a happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you all. I was reminded, um, talking to a, a good friend, that Mother's Day is a celebration, yes, um, but for a lot of us, it's also a very complicated day. Um, it's complicated in, 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 in the terms of not just our relationship with our mothers, um, but it's complicated in terms of our relationship to mothering or just in our life experiences and what we go through. So it's, it's, um, when we talked about tension earlier in the year, we reminded ourselves that tension doesn't just have to, you know, butt heads. You know, tension doesn't just have to pull us in two different directions. Tension can be two, you know, seemingly opposing things that we have to hold and hold both of them. Um, so as I, in the light of that conversation, in the midst of that conversation, I was reminded and then reminded her and then she reminded me that we can also celebrate Mother's Day because there's so many women who've poured into us. That we can celebrate Mother's Day for women who've been witnesses to us, for women who, who've prayed for us, for women who've loved us, who've supported us. As I look at my life, there's a lot of women. Actually, there's actually a lot more women who invested in me than men. So when we say Happy Mother's Day, we say, yes, it's complicated. Yes, it's a celebration. But it's also a chance to appreciate all the women who've been witnesses, who've been testimonies, who've supported us as well. Because mothering um, isn't just who we birth, right? It's not just nature. It's also nurture. And it's who we invest in. So with that said, Happy Mother's Day in all its complications, in all its celebrations. Happy Mother's Day to you all. Um, this morning, I'll be jumping in and continuing our Remembrance series. We're almost at the tail end of it. We have two, well, one more after this, actually. Uh, remember, when we started earlier in the year, we looked at remembering how God is revealed. And we focus on God in the Old Testament, how God's revealed. And now we've moved on to the New Testament, seeing how Jesus is revealed. Um, and one of the cool things about our God is he wants to be known. God wants to be revealed to us. So we see that in Scripture. There's time and time again, we've looked at different state, uh, verses or, or, or situations where God reveals and calls his people to remember. But we've also been challenged to look at, you know, the text of our lives and to look at different places in our lives where God has also called us to remember or what God has called us to remember. And we said this is all important because we as humans, you know, we're so easy to forget. We're so good at looking down or, or looking around and seeing everything around us. And when God calls us to remember, it's usually to look back. Look back at God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's wisdom, God's grace, God's love. But also we're challenged to look up. Because if our eyes are looking up at Jesus, we're not only remembering the goodness and grace and mercy and love, but we're having the author and finisher of our faith among us, the high priest, the mediator, God the Savior, God the Son is the one we look to as our guide. And then to, to remember, we've been looking at these basic journalistic questions that you get in like elementary or grammar school, right? Or middle school, sorry, that's my Liberian coming out. <laughs> middle school, junior high, right? Um, and it's who, what, when, where, and why, right? And one of the interesting things that I didn't anticipate in this series, but a lot of times these themes that we've been looking at to remember usually looks at, at the end of the day, at the end of the scene, people want to kill Jesus. Now, you can breathe a little easier because we're actually going to go to the Calvary Street today and we'll see where Jesus actually died, right? But we did a bunch of the remember. So you remember when Jesus said, remember who I am. He goes in that scene and he says, yeah, you know the God of the Old Testament? You know Yahweh, the God who was there, the God who will be there, the God who is there, the God who's with you now? That's me. I am he. Remember who I am. And they wanted to kill him. 
Then the next week we talked about, remember what I have done, looking at Jesus' call and, and witness and work and to, to set the captives free and to, to, to bring the good news, proclaim the year of Jubilee. And Jesus in that scene says, remember how we've been waiting for the Messiah. The one that was promised from Adam through, you know, Abraham through even David. Remember that Messiah that we've been waiting for. We've had all these false ones and all these false ones. We're waiting for the day till the Messiah will come, establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, and rule. Remember that Messiah we're waiting for. I am him. And they wanted to kill him. And then the third week we looked at this idea of, of remembering when I was saved. Remembering what it means to be born again. And surely this is a scene between Jesus and Nicodemus, and this one ends well. But you can see how this scene would have fed the religious leaders of the day. Because in that scene, Jesus says, born again isn't just the point you choose to follow me. It's the process of becoming more and more like me. Born again isn't just you realizing there's a light, but it's you actually walking in the light. Born again is a lifetime commitment to following me. And in that scene, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher, but you have this idea these people have this idea that Israel is the, the, the pinnacle of all that God is. Israel is not. And that's something I think we even in 2021 need to hear. Israel is not the pinnacle of all that God is. Jesus is the pinnacle of all of God is. And that's where we should be aligning. Jesus. And in that scene, he says to Nicodemus, I am the fulfillment of all that Israel is. And Nicodemus didn't want to kill him, so he took a week off, right? No one wants to kill him that week. But then last week, talk about remembering why. And that's this idea of Jesus is God, yes, but God loves and chooses us. A lot of us who grew up in church, and maybe those of us who are new to church, when we think of God's love, it seems like something so big, so overwhelming, so automatic, right? He's God. He has to love. He's God. But I've been reminded in the series and in the story of Jesus that God's love is available to all, yes, but it's also very individual and it's also very particular. Remember David, the man after God's own heart says, surely goodness and mercy, surely God, the fact that you're good and mercy, which was this Jewish or Old Testament idea of hesed. And in the New Testament, it shows up as agape, meaning that surely the love you have for me, the love that works for my good, the love that always carries me, the love that was with me, the love that will be with me, the love that's with me now. Surely that love you have for me, it will chase me down until I'm captured. God's love is not just this automatic thing that goes to everyone. It's not just a shadow you can't shake. God's love is particular, it's individual, and David says, surely goodness and God's perfect love will chase me down until I'm captured. That should change us a little bit to know how individual, how particular, how God has chosen you. And then this morning, we're going to go to where? We're going to look at Calvary's tree. We're going to look at Calvary's tree to remember that as Jesus goes up to the cross, it's the point where God saved us, yes, but it's also the point where we find redemption, where we find salvation, where we find not even justification, but we find sanctification. And all these words just simply mean that God loves us, God came for us, God died for us, and God conquered sin and death forever for us. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 27. So I'll be reading a, a longer text than normal, but it's 
hard to talk about the crucifixion when they just pick four verses, you know? Um, so this isn't even a whole scene. In fact, um, I want to remind you even this week, go through and read through Matthew 27 again. Um, in Matthew 27, uh, Matthew in his telling of the gospel provides Jesus' trial, Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus' burial. I think as long as Matthew is, I think it might be the longest gospel. I didn't check. Someone can check and fact check me. Um, but it's, it's certainly that or Luke. It's, well, yeah, it's one of the longest gospels of the four. Uh, but as long as Matthew is, I think nearly 10% of Matthew, or maybe over 10% of Matthew, is dedicated to what happens on the cross. It's dedicated to Jesus' trial, um, crucifixion, and burial. But we're going to jump in kind of in right, um, right before uh, we get to the, well, we're going to jump in at the cross. <laughs> so starting at verse 32, um, it will also be up front, so you can follow there as well. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Jesus, our Christ, we thank you so much that you are indeed the son of promise, that you're the father's one and only son, the only begotten son, the special son. The only one who was chosen since the beginning of time. The only one who could come to redeem us, to, to set us free, to break the chains now and forever, to make it possible that we as lost children can come home again. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are indeed the Son of God, the one who left heaven, the one who left radiance to take on skin, the God of all eternity coming to a time and place, the God who came to show us how to live to please God, how to love to please God, how to live and love to bring shalom to our world. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're also the son of man, that you are perfectly God, but also perfectly man. So, Lord, there's nothing we suffer that you have not suffered and healed. There's nothing we go through and anticipate that you have not carried your people through. And as the son of man, we look at you, not only that you can relate to us, but that, Lord, you're in relationship with us. That not only you know what we're feeling, what we go through, but that you're able to be here with us. That you've been there in the past that you'll be there in the future, but help us to know that even right now, you're with us, you're in it with us. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that as we remember where, as we go back to Calvary, we're reminded of a God who chooses us. 
who works for our good, who always does what's best for us. Lord, help us to love you as you love us. In your holy and precious name, amen. So we started um, kind of during the season of Lent. And during the season of Lent, we talked about how, you know, one of the ways historically we looked at Lent is, yeah, it's this time of sacrifice, self-denial, focus, prayer, um, discipline. And it kind of focuses on Jesus's, you know, being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. But the other part of Lent traditionally in, in, in church history has also been this idea of the march towards the cross. So a couple times, starting in um, the Lenten series, we see that the March of Worship Cross begins at Lent and it ends at Holy Week. And when we get to Holy Week, there's two things we pointed out. The first one we had pointed out was that in Matthew 25, Jesus does something that is way more than just a philosophical statement. In Matthew 25, that's the passage where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, right? Where Jesus says, these are who belong to me, and these are the people who do not belong to me. And in that passage, he says, you know, the ones who belong to me, when I was hungry, they gave me food to eat. When I was thirsty, they gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, they invited me in. When I was an alien or an immigrant, they made space for me in their country, at their tables, in their neighborhoods, in their states in their cities. When I was naked, they clothed me. When I was sick, they took care of me. When I was imprisoned, they visited me. That's who belongs to me. And most of us, we stop there and look at it philosophically. That's why we need to do these things. That's why we need to feed the hungry, you know, give water to the thirsty. That's why we need to invite the immigrant and the stranger in. That's why we need to clothe the naked and take care of the sick and visit the prisoners. But when we get from Matthew 25 to Matthew 27, and we look at Jesus on the cross, we realize that it's not just a philosophical statement he's making. Because on the cross, our Jesus was hungry, and his body was the only bread. On the cross, our Jesus was thirsty, and they gave him wine or gall, and they mocked him, and they, they, they mocked him, and it was like a fake relief to him. On the cross, Jesus, who again is the God of the universe, the one who's gone on from eternity past, who came into a time and place, came among a people that's under Roman rule, is driven out of the city of God, out of Jerusalem, and is treated like a stranger in his own land. Not just the land he created, but the people he chose to be a part of. He's driven out and treated like a stranger because in Roman times, you could not crucify a Roman citizen. You could only crucify the outsiders and the strangers, and that hasn't changed, has it? How we treat our citizens versus our quote-unquote aliens. But Jesus is treated like an immigrant and an alien in his own city as he's driven outside of Jerusalem to be crucified. Now, a lot of us, when we picture Jesus on the cross, you know, maybe we have like um, Renaissance paintings in our head or different pictures. But there's a good chance, there's a better than average chance that as Jesus is dying for the sins of the world, that our Jesus is naked for all to see. There's a good chance that as Jesus is dying from the world, that he's so sick from all the beatings and scourgings that he's gone through and that he's suffered through. But what I love, and we'll see this in the passage, is that even though Jesus is weak, we have this one line about Simon the Cyrene. And you have to give me, forgive me a second, because I grew up with all these pictures of Jesus of blonde hair and blue eyes. And even though we knew he wasn't, you know, that's the pictures we got. So I get excited whenever I see a black person in the Bible. And I love I love this reminder that Jesus, on his way to Calvary, the cross is so heavy that he gives it to Simon, a black man from North Africa, to help bear that cross. And it's a reminder to all of us that if the God of this universe, 
that if the God of all things, that if Jesus himself needs help carrying his burdens, maybe we need help too. And I don't know who needs to hear it this morning, but there's so many of us in this Western culture and society who think that we have to do it all by ourselves. We have to carry all the burdens by ourselves. But if Jesus needed help to carry the cross, it's okay for you to need help too. And I don't know who your Simon is, right? I am a black man from Africa. I don't know if I can carry all your burdens either, right? But that's not the point. The point is that we need one another, and that's okay. And Jesus needed help to carry that cross because he was so sick from those beatings. And I was thinking this week about how, yes, Jesus is imprisoned by Rome. He's imprisoned by these soldiers who are in front of him and mocking him. He's imprisoned by the crowd who, who surely is saying, crucify him, crucify him. But the more as I dug into the passage, I realized that he's also imprisoned by us. It was our sin and our shame that held him there. It was what we've done and how we live that held them there. It was the, Jesus chose to suffer, and I love this time and time again. He said, save himself, you know, come down from the cross. But it's we who imprisoned him there. But there's still freedom that comes. You know, so when we talk about Matthew 25, we have to move from this philosophy of who belongs to me to realize that the people who belong to Jesus, that's who he identifies with. The hungry, the thirsty, the aliens, the strangers, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned, the marginalized, the least of these is who Jesus identifies with. The second way we looked at the cross when it came a little bit after Holy Week or during Holy Week and the beginning of this Eastertide season is we said we have to remember Jesus' praise chorus. Most of us, and you read it in this passage in Matthew 27, we read that passage when Jesus cries out with a loud voice. He says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? We take it and we run with it. Because it sounds like what? Jesus is in pain. Jesus feels alone. Jesus is saying, God, where are you in the midst of my suffering? But imagine if you watched a movie and you saw the movie 10 times and it's your favorite movie and someone only quotes one line from the movie. Or imagine if you have a song, a favorite song that you've listened to hundreds of times and someone only quotes one line from the song. When we just stop it and my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? That's what we're doing. We're taking one line from the song and one line from the movie and saying we understand what's going on. But we do not. Because what Jesus says, and my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me, is he's quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is what? A song of praise. And if it's a song of praise, it means it's a song that the people would have grown up singing every week in synagogue. So when we look at the full song, we realize that what Jesus is saying is that, yes, I'm broken. Yes, I'm beaten. Yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I'm dying for your sin. Yes, I feel like God has forsaken me. But do you want to know how that song ends? Do you want to know how that song ends? At the end of Psalm 22, this is the words that people would have sung. We go from, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And this is what Jesus wants you to remember, the whole song, the praise chorus, because it goes like this. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. 
What Jesus is saying on the cross isn't that I feel alone and God isn't with me. Jesus is saying I may look alone. I may look that God isn't with me, but God is here. The Spirit is above me and inside of me. The Father is holding me up. And when I die on the cross for your sins, God is going to say he has done it. And every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every family of the world will be blessed. Why? Because of what I'm doing on Calvary's tree. Remember not just the line from the song, remember the whole chorus. What a blessing that as he's dying, he's singing praises to God. The second thing that's really blown my mind, and this one came first in my life, was realizing that when Jesus is dying on the cross, not only is he singing these words of praise, but it's Mother's Day, so you got to throw this in. But as he's dying on the cross for our sins, he looks down, and in front of him, he sees his mother Mary. And in front of him, he sees his best friend John. And I love this about our Jesus because in that culture, as the elder son, it was your duty, it was your job to provide for your mother. We think that Joseph has long gone into glory. So it's just Jesus left as the oldest son. And I love that even though he's dying for the sins of the world, he cares about the individual. And that's why I say God's love isn't just automatic. It's particular for you and will chase you down until you're captured. So he looks at Mary and says, Mary, look at John. Behold, there's your son. John, look at Mary. Behold oh, there's your mother. This duty I have, I give it to you. Mary, that's your son. He will take care of you. That's the kind of God we have. He can be dying for the sins of the world, but still cares what's happening in your life. And I think that's one of the tricks the devil tries to keep us thinking that I'm too small for God to care. I don't matter for God to care. What I'm going through isn't as bad as what someone else is going through. But God's love is individual. God's love is particular. God's love is designed for you. And I want you to hold on to that design idea. Because when we go to Calvary's tree this morning, it's important to realize that Jesus, yes, becomes like the least of these. It's important to realize that Jesus cares for Mary. Happy Mother's Day. It's important to realize that Jesus is singing praise choruses. But I also think it's important to realize where Jesus died. And that's where we're going to go. Because in the last maybe two, three hundred years, there's been a lot of scholarship who have really kind of, it's sort of as this idea that's always been there, but it's probably been linked together. And the idea is that this place that Jesus died, this area called Mount Moriah, happens to be the same place of Abraham and Isaac happens to be the same place where Solomon resurrected or built the temple. And it happens to be the same place we call Golgotha, the place of a skull. Remember where God has saved and what is the significance. In Genesis 22, we learn that God asked Abraham to do the impossible, to offer up his son, his only son. And for those of us who've been paying attention to Genesis, it's like, what about Ishmael? This whole only son business, like there's a whole nother son called Ishmael. But if you dig into the Hebrew, you'll realize that what they're saying here is, no, it's not your only son as in your one son, but it's this idea of the son of promise. The one through whom all the blessings will come. The one through whom Israel will be established as the people of God. The one who through whom the Messiah will come. Isaac, the son of promise. And if you go through that text, you realize that God, yes, he asked Abraham to do the impossible to offer up his only son and then provide salvation in the ram. But the groundwork is laid that when it comes to love and sacrifice, will a father be willing to offer up the only son? And then you move a couple of generations later. And in 2 Chronicles 3, there's one line where it says, you know, 
Solomon erected the temple on the floor of Arona the Jebusite. And before we get to the temple itself, you got to go and say, who is this Arona guy? And he actually shows up in Chronicles and Samuel. One calls him Arona, one calls him Ornan. And the Jebusites were a people who were actually in Israel, in Jerusalem, before the Israelites got there. So there's some people who believe this Arona was a prophet or a king. So you have to understand that what's happening in the story is David does this great sin, and he trusts in himself and not trust God. And it's one of the few places in Scripture where God says, you know what, you've sinned against me, David, but I'll give you a choice. And the choices are famine, the choices are running from your enemies, or the choices are, are facing the angel of death for three days. And David does something down like, wow, that's incredible. David says, you know what, I don't want my people to suffer years of famine. I definitely don't want to be at the mercy of my enemies. I will put myself in the mercy of the Lord. But then death comes. And this angel of death is wreaking havoc all throughout Israel. And when God looks down and David and the people are praying and they're crying out, and God halts the angel, guess where the angel happens to stop? On the floor of Arona, threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, which is literally in Mount Moriah where Abraham and Isaac just happened. And so David goes down. And I love this scene because Ornan and then Arona bows down to David. And I used to think that he bowed down to David because it's like David's king, right? But then I realized that David is a warrior and king in the hand of God. And if that guy shows up to your house, you bow down too. But Arona submits to his king. And he does this worshipful act of bowing all the way down to David. But I love that David, I think, gives us the best definition of worship in all of Scripture. We look at David, we say he's a worshipful person because he wrote songs of praise and psalms. And he did. We'll say David's a worshipful person because he danced coming into the city, right? But what David reminds us is that worship isn't how high we sing. Worship isn't how far we jump or how much we can dance. Worship isn't how high our verses goes up to heaven, how, how powerful our prayers are. Worship is this idea of I will not give my God that which costs me nothing. Arona wants to give him the threshing floor for free. And David says, no, if I'm going to worship the Lord, it's got to cost me something, which is a challenge to us. Because we now need to define our worship by our lives, by the essence of who we are. So worship isn't how well you can sing. For some of us, you know, just make a joyful noise. You might not be in tune, right? But worship is also not about how powerful you pray, how powerful you speak. And it's not even about what you look at on the outside. Worship is this idea is, does God own and does my gifts, my skills and abilities belong to God? Does my hopes and dreams belong to God or myself? Does my future belong to God or myself? Does everything that I am belong to God or myself? Because that is worship. Do not offer to God that which costs you nothing because that is not worship. And David gives us this definition of saying, Arona, I know you want to give me this floor for free, but I can't take it because I will not give to God that which costs me nothing. And David builds an altar and they have a praise and worship service and he leaves. And a generation later, his son Solomon goes to that same threshing floor. And it's at that threshing floor that he builds the temple. And if you start in 2 Chronicles 3, again, the chronicler is writing after they've come out of, you know, captivity. And he's writing to bring hope. But if you start in 2 Chronicles 3, 3, you'll read and see how it's really an architectural marvel, especially for that time and place. It's this beautiful, amazing structure that Solomon and his people were able to build. But more than the architectural structure was that the temple represented the place where God dwelled. And they now had this, this, this home for God and the place where God dwelt. And the temple, even to this day, they talk about Solomon's temple. That was Israel's glory because Israel forgot. And Isaiah reminds them that when the temple was built, 
that the temple was supposed to be what? A house of prayer for all the nations. And Israel forgot that God wasn't just about Israel, that God called Israel to be what? A light to all the world. So you have (laughs) Abraham and Isaac, and will a father be willing to give his son? You have the temple, which is glory and, and the fulfillment of all these promises. And then we get to the Gospels and Calvary. And again, we're focused on, on, on Matthew's point, right? And Matthew introduces this idea of not just the architectural marvel that's happening, but the idea that God is an architect. And I don't know if you know an architect, but they tend to be very meticulous. They tend to be very particular about their planning, their design, their crafting. And I, for one, am grateful for it, right? Because I like that my buildings don't fall down. I like that my bridges, you can go across and come back. Like, some of us grew up in states where, like, when it rained, the bridge was just an idea. <laughs> you know, like, it was an idea to get to the other side. You just, it was a praise exercise. We'll put it that way. We'll make it more positive, right? So I'm grateful for architects. But what Calvary reminds us is that God is the architect of our fate. That all this planning, all this design was made, not just so we have coincidentally Abraham and Isaac, or coincidentally the temple, coincidentally Calvary, is that all was planned to move us along to say, I will be the God who's willing to give my son of promise. I will be the God where you will now not just dwell, you'll not see me dwell in the temple, but I will now dwell inside of you. That God's glory is that light will conquer dark forever. That sin and death will be arrested and defeated. That God is going to bring salvation to not just Israel, but to all the peoples. And that's what's happening as we remember where. Now, I said Matthew 27 covers Jesus' trial, crucifixion, and burial. But if you start at the top of Matthew 27 and you work down, you'll meet Judas. And one of the things I, I was reminded about Judas this week is that a lot of us maybe see Judas as very conniving. But I think he's actually conscious. He's actually intentional about what he's trying to do. He's not careless. He's actually careful. And I think Judas is trying to say, if you're the Messiah, if you're the Son of God, if you're the one who's going to usher in the kingdom, let me help you out a little. And there's a song I talked about Rich Mullins last week, and it has this song, Heaven in His Eyes, right? And I remember listening to that song as a 15, 16-year-old, and one of the things that struck me, was that we tend to think that Peter is restored on the beach. And maybe Peter's ministry is restored on the beach. But if you look at the difference between Judas and Peter, what you'll see is that Peter saw Jesus on the cross. And Judas did not. And it's a reminder to us that no matter how much we fall short, that no matter how much we feel like we're never enough, that no matter how many mistakes we made, if we take it to the cross, If we take it to the cross, we'll see a God who loves us. We'll see a God who forgives us. And personally, I think that Peter is redeemed because he looks up and sees God and he weeps because he knows that I have done wrong, yes, I've denied him, yes, but oh my goodness, he loves me. And I think that's what keeps Peter alive. And I think if Judas had seen the same thing, if Judas has seen him and not done the, 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 the injustice of looking down upon himself or looking around, if Judas had looked up like we're commanded to do, I believe that Judas too would have known forgiveness of his sin. As you're moving through, you also meet Pilate, which again, when we hear share this story, we think of Pilate as this powerful ruler of Rome. But when you study history, you realize that Pilate is literally just a figure. That Pilate was just someone that Rome was like, we need somebody there, you will do it. You have no power, but what power we give you? And then when you read through the text, you realize that the crowd seems to have more power than Pilate. 
you realize that the religious leaders seem to have more power than Pilate. And we see that Pilate isn't strong, but he's weak. And he's, he's able to submit even though he knows this is wrong. And speaking of those crowds, those soldiers, those religious leaders, it's so easy to see their ugliness. But I was reminded this week, as I focus on the cross, that it's a reminder not just of their ugliness, but our own. How many times do we live in a way that doesn't bring honor and glory to God? How many times do we live in a way that chooses ourselves instead of what God desires us to do? How many times is our focus only on me and me and mine when God says, I have sent you to be a light to the world, the light to all peoples? And then the last person we met is Simon the Cyrene, which I already talked about a little bit. The cross bearer reminds us that if Jesus needed help, it's okay for us to need help too. I think for those of us who are really good and capable and strong, we like to take it all on ourselves. There's a reason we're called the body of Christ. There's a reason we're called members of one another. There's a reason why even outside of faith, every human study that studies people says what? You need people. You need others. And for those of us who didn't believe that, COVID has really kind of really taught us that, hasn't it? We need to be cross bearers for one another, like Simon from Cyrene. But it all summed it all up, I think, is that when we look through Matthew's story, we remember where we need to be reminded that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised. Everything from what we read in Isaiah this morning to what they did to his clothes to how they treated him, to the wine they tried to give him, to who mocked him, to who imprisoned him. God had promised all these things, and all these scriptures are fulfilled. And because Jesus, the son of promise, was willing to die for us, I think it's important for us to hold on to simply this. He could have saved himself. He could have came down from Calvary's tree, but he chose not to save himself so that he can save you. That, that Jesus trusted God. And I think we, we sometimes miss this. I miss this for years. But Jesus is the God of all eternity. He's gone on forever. So first of all, it's a trust exercise for him to actually say, I'm going to become a human and come into this time and place. And he does that. But what we forget is that on Calvary's tree, even that other song he sings, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, that's another psalm. That's another praise song, right? But when he does that, he's saying, Father, I'm going to trust that this is enough. I'm going to trust that the work has been done, the work has been fulfilled. I'm going to trust you. And I'm not going to put this on you, but I'm going to put this on myself this morning. Trust is really hard for some of us, right? And I'll just put it in faith context. There are things I find very easy to trust God with, like my future. I really don't worry about my future. I don't. Some people do. I just don't. I never have. I'm just like, well, God loves me. He's God. He'll figure it out, right? Just tell me where to go. Sometimes I'll try to go in that direction. I never worry about my future. But I'll tell you where I struggle is when I look at the world around me and I look at my seven-year-old daughter and my five-year-old daughter and I look at the world that's increasingly around them. I struggle with this idea that they're going to be okay. We all struggle with something. We all struggle with a level to trust and what to trust and who to trust. But what the Calvary reminds us is that if Jesus is willing to trust God with his own life, that if the God of all eternity is willing to die and trust that the Father will raise him up, maybe, just maybe, you can trust God too. With whatever it is you've been holding on to, maybe, just maybe, you can trust God too. As we remember where this week, I want us to remember these six things. One, 
God is the ultimate architect of your life. Not just your faith, but your life. The God is the one who has dutifully planned, mapped out, curated, created, done the mathematics, done all the equations, put it together, and made you, you. It's not just that God is in control. It's that God is working for your good. Second thing I want us to remember is, who does Jesus choose to identify with? It's not the rich. It's not the powerful. It's the marginalized. It's the hungry, it's the thirsty, it's the strangers, the aliens, the immigrants, it's the naked, it's the sick, it's the imprisoned. Jesus chooses to identify with the people that society leaves behind. And Jesus leaves us as the church to not just identify with them, but to bring light to them where they're suffering and where they need to be pulled out of that darkness. Another thing I want us to remember is these praise choruses that Jesus is singing. That he's not saying, God, you turned your back on me. But he's saying, God, although I feel alone, I'm doing it for your glory. I'm doing it for all the nations of the world. I want us to remember also, Pastor Carmen talked about this a little bit. I want you to remember this week where God has chosen or where the point where you decided to follow God. I want you to find that point. I want you to hold on to that point. And all I want you to do is just say, thank you. That's it. The second thing I want you to remember is that if Jesus trusted God, so must we. It might be our health, it might be our finances, it might be our future, it might be our children, it might be ourselves, it might be not, not feeling I'm doing enough for God. Whatever it is that you're holding on to so tightly, let it go. Let it go and give it to God. There's a song by Jonathan McReynolds that I love, and he has this line, he says, may your struggles move you closer to the cross. And I love that idea because if I'm willing to take these things I'm holding on so tightly and place it at the foot of the cross, I'll be reminded that the God who loves me is the God who's the architect. That the God who died for me is the God who redeems me. That the God who, who is there, who was there, is there, will be there, is the God that has healed everything I'm going through. The God who's rescued people before. And the last thing I want us to hold on to as we leave is this idea that Jesus fulfilled God's promises and now Jesus has left the Spirit and you, the church, to fill his promise for the world. I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah on our worship team. We're going to close with singing a song, uh, Death Was Arrested. And, and this is a song that may not be familiar to all of us. I'd like to invite you, before you catch the, the rhythm and the melody, to, to maybe just look at the words and use that as a prayer. And as you sing and you jump in, I want you to be reminded that when, where God saved us is not just where we are redeemed, but it's where the world was redeemed. And that where God saved us is not just for us. It's that so we can take this new life into the world and gift it to our world. I'd like to invite any pastors in the room to be up front. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. Um, if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus, we'd love to pray for you or talk to you more about that. Or if there's any struggles or anything you're going through, we'd love to at least be able to walk alongside of you. Because remember, we are indeed the body of Christ. We're members of one another. And we are not meant to carry these burdens by ourselves. Let's stand and sing together.
over me. You have made me new. Now life begins with you. It's your endless love pouring down on us. You have made us new. Now life begins with you. This week as we remember where did Jesus save us? Maybe more than just, oh, there's uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac, and this is where the temple was. That's where Jesus died. Maybe a true reminder that it's about the grace of God that washes over all of us. But may we also be reminded that Jesus didn't just die for you, he came for the world. And this new life that we're gifted in Jesus isn't just for you, it's for the world. So that they can look at the cross, so that they can feel what God's love feels like, they can know what God's love is. And I pray that all of us 
are empowered by the Spirit, holding on to one another, because with Jesus on our side, with the Spirit inside of us, with our sisters and brothers around us, we can show this world what love and life and light looks like. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of promise, the one who left heaven to come to earth, the one who left radiance to take on skin, the one who knew no weaknesses to become human. God, I thank you that you were fully God, the one who spoke the world into existence yet chose to come into this creation. But I also thank you that you were fully one of us as a human. Human. That, Lord, you struggle like we struggle. You doubted like we doubted even. But, Lord, that everything that you went through, your Father was with you. The Spirit was inside of you. So help us to hold on to that as well. Knowing that what we go through, God has healed before. What we struggle through, God has resurrected and redeemed before. So, Lord, help us to learn what it means to listen and submit to the Spirit. Help us to keep our eyes fixed and trained on you, Jesus the Son. And help us to know that our Father is the God who was, the God who is, the God who will be, the God who's with us now. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your Son. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.